note for listeners. In this episode, we describe scenes of violence in the wake of disaster that may be difficult for sensitive listeners. This is Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. I'm Lizzie Peabody. So let me share screen with you now. Okay. Okay. Hayden Bassett is showing me a satellite picture. A piece of evidence, actually. I mean, it just looks like a house from above, and it's a black and white picture, but you can tell it's kind of snowy. And, yeah, it kind of just looks like a house in the suburbs. And what I'm going to show you now is approximately one week later. (gasps) What you're looking at now is that same building. Wow, it looks like someone just took the roof off. It does. The roof is missing. The inside of the building is completely exposed. And as you can see inside of that building, uh, the contents are completely burned. The ash and, you know, other debris is spilling out of the windows. Uh, But otherwise, this is a shell of what it once was. This was the Ivan Kiev Museum of History and Local Lore in northern Ukraine. Just a couple days after Russia invaded Ukraine in February of this year, the museum was destroyed, along with everything inside. Including, um, you know, upwards of of 20 uh, pieces of art that unfortunately were burned when this museum was burned. Hayden Bassett is the director of the Cultural Heritage Monitoring Lab, a geospatial lab that captured evidence of the museum's destruction using satellite technology. Sitting at his desk, he looks like he could be manning the command center in some disaster movie. In front of him, a wall of computer screens. And uh, what we're looking at is a picture of the globe. Covering the globe are hundreds of thousands of tiny dots, each representing a museum, a place of worship, archaeological site, cemetery, or monument, what Hayden refers to as cultural heritage sites. Cultural heritage, what does it have? It typically has identity, and it typically has dates. Dates and identity, in combination, amount to a claim, to a history by a people. The mission of the Cultural Heritage Monitoring Lab is to watch where cultural heritage sites might be at risk, like in Ukraine, where cultural identity is at the very center of the conflict. In a speech just days before the Ivan Kiev Museum was destroyed, Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed Russians and the world, saying... Ukraine never had its own authentic statehood. Uh, This is a war not only for the territory, not only for human bodies. This is war against our culture. This is Ihor Poshivalo, director of the Maidan Museum in Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv. They want to destroy our historical memory, our cultural identity, our individual identity as Ukrainians. That's why the Cultural Heritage Monitoring Lab is remotely monitoring 28,000 cultural heritage sites in Ukraine. As of the taping of this podcast, the lab has confirmed damage to 108 of these sites, including the Ivan Kiev Museum. And so uh, today it's quite clear that we struggle uh, not only 
for our future, but also for our past. The front lines of this struggle are in the basements where paintings have been stashed, in town squares where monuments are shielded by piles of sandbags, and in cemeteries where names and dates on gravestones create a tangible link to the past. And that front line requires a different kind of defense. What do you do when you have a burnt-out museum? What do you do when your collections are compromised, but you have to salvage them in some way? While Hayden is able to document the destruction of Ukraine's cultural treasures, then what? From there, like, where do you go? Who do you tell? So this is where the Smithsonian comes in. The institution that has created a global cultural heritage network of responders. This time on Side Door, the second front line in times of crisis. How a little-known department at the Smithsonian grew from a pickup team with no authority, no resources, and no playbook into the hub of a global rescue effort to protect cultural treasures at risk of vanishing forever. And how a decade of disasters prepared them for the rescue work in Ukraine today. That's coming up after the break. Today Explained is a daily news show from Vox. Every weekday, hosts Sean Ramosferum and Noel King break down one major story and provide the context you need to wrap your head around the news. From tech to politics, from climate change to the economy, and even a sprinkle of pop culture, Today Explained has got you covered. I think you're going to like what you hear. Follow Today Explained wherever you listen. Side Door is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. The major disaster may be unfolding right now in Haiti, hit today by a powerful earthquake. On January 12, 2010, a magnitude 7 earthquake struck just south of Haiti's capital city, Port-au-Prince. For 35 seconds, it shook the mountainous Caribbean island, leaving entire hillsides flattened. The reports and images that we've seen collapsed hospitals, crumbled homes, and men and women carrying their injured neighbors through the streets are truly heart-wrenching. Almost 1,300 people are now known to have died. Many more are feared to be trapped under the rubble of collapsed buildings. It was uh, the worst uh, days in my life. This is Olson Jean-Julien, the former Haitian minister of culture. You can't even bury friends. It's like so many people was dead. You don't have time to go to funerals. The earthquake left over 200,000 Haitians dead and one and a half million homeless. Around the world, people watched the devastation on television. They saw Haitians pulling family members from the rubble, sleeping in public parks. But they saw something else, too. Singing. In the streets and the parks of Port-au-Prince, through the day and into the night. And they are singing like, songs 
and drawing from the Asian culture. When a culture is able to provide those resources to people in such dire situation, is a very strong culture. This is something that we need to help save. But Olson Jean-Julien knew that the earthquake put Haitian culture at risk. Artwork, texts, religious collections lay scattered in the wreckage of leveled museums, libraries, and homes. And he says these objects are vessels for Haitian heritage. How do we transmit education to our kids? How do we transmit value? How do we transmit beauty? How do we transmit like, the sense of space, the sense of time? The very values we want to save and to protect are embodied in artifacts. And Olson says while saving human lives is always the top priority. People live for a reason. And the reason for living is in culture, you can see that. So uh, after trying to save people's life, you need to try to save people's reason for living. Over a thousand miles away, in Washington, D.C., a somber group gathered in a boardroom. It was a gray February morning, just a few weeks after the earthquake. Corey Wegner sat at the head of the table. The goal of the meeting was to see what organizations in the in U.S. and in U.S. government might be able to assist. Corey Wegner has an unusual combination of specialties. First, she's an art historian. At the time, she was a curator at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, but she was also a monuments officer in the U.S. Army Reserves. And she wanted to use her expertise in art history and cultural preservation to help out in Haiti. But she knew she couldn't do it alone. So she called on her connections. And I had heard from uh, colleagues that you should invite Richard Curran from the Smithsonian because he's a guy who really gets things done. Well, I was aware that a meeting had been called. You know, I was curious, like, what are we going to do? This is Richard Kieran. At the time, he was the undersecretary of the Smithsonian, meaning he had a corner office in the Smithsonian Castle and all the cachet that goes with it. But let me just say, I once watched Richard eat ice cream for breakfast. It was Ben and Jerry's, straight from the carton. He does not mind tossing convention out the window when the moment calls for it. I'm a kind of doer. Not kind of. Richard gets it done. He spent many years producing the Smithsonian's annual Folklife Festival. Every year you had to start anew and basically build a town or a city on the National Mall of the United States in the midst of a lot of regulation and never enough money. (laughs) And so I was a problem solver. Kieran had worked with Haitian curators for the 2004 Folklife Festival, celebrating the bicentennial of Haitian independence. And he'd kept in contact over the years. So I planned to go to this meeting, and I got, I think, the last seat at the table. (laughs) On that gray February morning in D.C., with the sky outside threatening snow, representatives of government agencies and NGOs and cultural institutions went around the table, and one by one they shook their heads and agreed. What was happening in Haiti was terrible. But... You know, they didn't really have the assets, or they didn't have the money, or they didn't have the expertise. The authority to do anything. Or the permissions. Or we're not really organized for this. The last speaker was Richard Curran, and he said, 
wow, I can't believe that there's not more of a response to this. We really needed to do something. Like, I couldn't believe that the United States government and U.S. organizations, while there was a will to do something, there wasn't a clear organizational path of how to get it done. After the meeting, Richard caught Corey as she stepped outside into the first flakes of falling snow. He asked me to stay behind and talk for a moment, and he said, We're going to do something. We're going to figure this out. And I remember thinking, oh, sure. And I'm not sure Corey really believed me. Um, But no, really. Two weeks later, we were in Haiti. (laughs) But once they arrived in Port-au-Prince, there was still a lot to figure out before they could get to work. The city was devastated. Infrastructure in pieces, spotty electricity. It looked like bombs had been dropped all over the capital. Buildings were a shell of themselves. You know, places in rubble, museums, fragments of paintings on the ground. It was, it, it was like a war zone. But remember, Richard is a problem solver. He knew just who to call. We put together a great team for the folk life, and... We stick together. This, of course, is Olson Jean Julien. He had been a coordinator for the Folklife Festival in 2004, and he'd gone on to become the Minister of Culture of Haiti. When Richard came, we started discussing what should be done. And my first impulse was actually to think of it like a Folklife Festival. (laughs) Interestingly enough, I mean, you know, there's that saying, you know, if you're a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail. So, (laughs) you know, to me is okay, we needed to establish some kind of temporary presence. And that's what the idea of uh, creating a cultural recovery base to save everything we could. With the support of the Haitian government, the idea was first to set up a base where Haitians could bring paintings, sculptures, books, and religious collections. And the government officially requested the Smithsonian to manage and fund the project. Why? Why the Smithsonian? Why the Smithsonian? The Smithsonian uh, uh, shows up. A coordinated effort was coming together, dubbed the Haiti Cultural Recovery Project. They had the willpower and they had a plan— but they still needed money. And that's when Richard got an unexpected call. The Broadway League in New York wanted to do something to help colleagues in Haiti. And, you know, the question is why? The answer, 9-11. A decade earlier, New Yorkers had lived through the terrorist attacks that left thousands dead and dispirited the soul of the country. And they remembered. It was very important for people on Broadway to get Broadway back up and running, get the lights on Broadway and show that we're alive. And so they made the equation that the Haitian earthquake was like 9-11 in New York. And getting Haitian culture back up and going and saving it so people in the future in Haiti could be creative, uh, could, could craft their own future, could help in their resilience was very important. The Broadway League raised over a quarter million dollars. And um, they said, Richard, we'll give it to you. <laughs> And I needed it because I didn't have any Smithsonian money. We had nothing. Uh, But that enabled me to to get going. With a little funding, the Haiti Project got to work. They set up a temporary cultural recovery center in Port-au-Prince and flew in volunteer conservators to stabilize the paintings and other artifacts that had been crushed or left outside in the rain to mold. Here's Corey Wagner again. So you'd need to vacuum them and, and treat that mold. And then, you know, then they're stable. You don't 
We didn't do conservation to the level of, you know, putting it back in a gallery because we had so many thousands of objects. It was like a mash unit, not like a brain surgery Exactly. Stabilization is like a mash unit. You stabilize it to wait for further treatment later down the line, but you're preventing further damage. They also piloted a training course to teach Haitian curators on the ground the basics of emergency conservation. Is this kind of thing that you're teaching, it's not typical knowledge that like a curator at a museum would already have? No, it's really not typical knowledge. Um, Normally, curators uh, are, are dealing with the, the history of the objects, writing labels, um, creating publications, working with the public, and doing an emergency response for uh, damage in the museum is just not usually on the, on the curriculum in grad school, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't learn it, and most people don't. This course would be one of the most important things to come out of the Haiti Project. Over the next two years, it trained over 100 Haitians from three dozen cultural organizations in emergency conservation, better preparing them for the future. And it established a curriculum that could and would be used again. What we're really aiming at is to provide people with the means to take care of their own cultural heritage. You know, it's the whole teach a man to fish idea. You can't go parachuting in every time someplace around the world has a disaster. It's so much smarter to create a network of people with this training because, you know, there are just a lot of disasters out there. The Haiti Project was the first ever complex emergency response for cultural heritage. It brought together the U.S. President's Committee for the Arts and Humanities, the U.S. State Department, the Department of Defense, USAID, the National Endowments for the Arts and the Humanities, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the Haitian Government and Ministry of Culture, the American Institute of Conservation, nonprofits, universities, cultural heritage groups, museums, and charitable donors. All coordinated by the small but mighty team of doers. We needed to make a difference, and we did make one, a huge one. We saved about... 30,000 artifacts. The project led to the construction of a permanent conservation center at Kiskei University that trains conservators and preserves Haitian culture today, with Olson Jean-Julien at the helm. After their work in Haiti, Corey went back to her job at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and Richard went back to his desk at the Smithsonian, where he put his feet up, heaved a big sigh and was probably just about to dig into a fresh pint of Ben & Jerry's when the phone rang. It was the head of the National Museum of Mali, Samuel Sidibe. He'd worked with Richard on the Folklife Festival in 2003. He said, Richard, we have terrorists who are burning manuscripts in Timbuktu. We feel our collections are endangered by terrorism. Uh, Can the Smithsonian help us? But he said, you're doing this thing in Haiti. We've heard about it. Like, how about us? So Richard was like, of course. (laughs) Of course. But I can't do it without Corey. And so that's when I came to the Smithsonian to start up the Cultural Rescue Initiative program. The Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative. The team in Haiti, pulled together on the fly in response to an acute emergency, had revealed a deeper need across the international heritage community the need for an organization with money, authority, and expertise to intervene on behalf of cultural heritage in times of crisis. And so, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative, or SCRI for short, became official. And just in the nick of time, because the calls kept coming. 
We started getting requests from, really, from all over the world. Nepal, Egypt, Syria. So um, all of a sudden we found ourselves, I guess, we're in business. <laughs> but every crisis is different. It's one thing to see an ancient sculpture crushed by a falling building. It's another to watch someone deliberately sledgehammer it to smithereens. And Richard and Corey would soon find that protecting the world's treasures from human destruction requires a different set of skills. That's coming up after the break. Two days ago, a bomb went off at this World Heritage Site, and a group of about 20 cultural first aiders have arrived on the scene to assess the damage to that cultural heritage. They this is a video of a simulated disaster. It's the final training exercise for the course First Aid for Cultural Heritage in Times of Crisis, a collaboration between the Smithsonian and two other cultural heritage organizations, ECROM and the Prince Klaus Fund. This is one of many courses that have been offered by the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative. But this one was the one they first piloted in Haiti back in 2010. In the years since, it had grown into a four-week intensive available to heritage professionals from all over the world. And Corey says it's not that the information taught in this course is new. Of course, there's been training for emergency response for heritage for a long time. What set the first aid methodology apart a little bit is that we were really focused not on the preparing, not on the mitigating, but on the disaster itself. After learning the methodology in the classroom, trainees put their knowledge to the test in a high-pressure simulation. Unfortunately, another bomb just went off. And that's often when you find people that, if they haven't practiced it, they freeze and they don't know what to do. They will have to physically retrieve the items from the wreckage of the bombing and stabilize them, dry them out, and pack them and move them off to safe storage. Practicing it is so much better than, you know, reading it in a book. And just like a medical first aid course, it's meant to simplify. We're not saying you have to have five years of conservation training and a master's degree to do this. It's really kind of step-by-step -step simple, and there's no reason to freeze and leave things in the rubble. In the years since the Haiti earthquake, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative had continued to grow, leaning on the skills of Smithsonian experts, from archaeologists to conservation scientists to collections managers, to become a global resource for heritage impacted by disasters. They offered a wide range of courses to build a global network of trained responders. And in addition to those trainings, Scry sent professional teams wherever they were asked to help, Mali, Nepal, Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. This morning, ISIS claims to have destroyed priceless pieces of history. A video posted yesterday shows people taking power tools and sledgehammers to irreplaceable statutes and artifacts in Iraq. What could be One the loss million. of artifacts up to 2,700 years old. Sledgehammers, grills, and bare hands. The weapons used by ISIS in its latest demonstration of destruction. Released through social media Thursday, the five-minute video uses music and slow motion 
to dramatize the destruction at northern Iraq's Mosul Museum. In 2015, the Islamic extremist group ISIS published videos of their members smashing ancient sculptures, intentionally destroying the Mosul Museum, an act of violence against Iraqi national identity. Years later, Iraqi, Kurdish, and allied forces recaptured the city, but the museum lay in ruins. And in 2019, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative was part of the team working to rehabilitate it. But they couldn't just go in and start cleaning up. Because there was a lot of evidence from the videos and everything that war crimes had been committed there, the intentional destruction of cultural heritage. According to the 1954 Hague Convention, an international treaty that came out of World War II, the purposeful destruction of cultural property is a war crime. So Corey Wegner wanted to make sure these crimes were documented before they started cleaning up the museum. I started looking around to see who would come and do that documentation before we started our salvage operation. And I found out uh, nobody. (laughs) I talked to international law professors, and they said it's up to the aggrieved country. And I thought that's terrible because they're in the midst of a war. They're still fighting ISIS. And the victim should not be the one responsible for documenting the crime against them. Um, So we set out to learn how to do it ourselves. But where do you go to learn about art crime stuff? The FBI. We have a good relationship with colleagues in the FBI art crime team. And so we went to them and we said, how do you train agents to do the kind of work of documentation when you have criminal activity involving art? And they said, well, have we got a deal for you? The FBI offered to teach Corey's team the basics of crime scene documentation, photography, measurements, sample collections, basically how to collect evidence that would be taken seriously in an international court of law. I was like, well, it's been a long time since ISIS was in there. There's been all kinds of reporters going through the building. The evidence is already tampered with. And they said, but that's what happens when you have a cold case. It was an eye-opening concept to think of a museum as a crime scene. (laughs) But that's what they did. Richard remembers seeing the museum for the first time, a hole the size of a camper van blown in the middle of the floor, exposed pipes and rubble all around, and on the floor... What I thought looked like, not quite snow, but like New York City slush. You know, it was kind of white, but gray and mushy and whatever. And I said, what is that? And the director of the Mosul Museum said, that is what 25,000 books and manuscripts burnt up look like. It was horrifying because everywhere you walked, you would, your boots would crunch and you knew you were walking on an object fragment. The team got to work. So uh, we were all uh, assigned various tasks. My job, I remember, was um, to do measurements. How far away? Like here was a pile of rubble. It was obviously blown off of a wall. How far was it? How do you document those pieces of rap? So you you can try to reconstruct what exactly happened. And so they taught us how to look for evidence of the use of explosives. So like swiping walls for like residue and stuff like that? Right, right. And we were also looking for what's not there, what's missing. You know, it became pretty clear quickly that a lot of objects, the objects were just gone. So the reason that documentation was so important was, one, just 
for enforcement of the Hague Convention to prove that war crimes were committed, but two, to figure out what actually happened to some of these antiquities. Were they blasted to smithereens or were they trafficked somewhere else? That's exactly right. And this is a case where, you know, the information that came out of this team effort with our Iraqi colleagues to document this very carefully, now they have that information and they can work with the international law enforcement community to try to keep an eye out for those objects. At the Mosul Museum in Iraq, the team practiced the basics of forensic documentation, methods Scry would incorporate into their own trainings later on. But they weren't just limited to their work on the ground. We were able to monitor ISIS destruction of cultural sites uh, by getting satellite imagery and then doing analysis of it. It gave us another tool, and of course that's a tool now we're using in Ukraine. So we're using you know, high-resolution, frequently updated imagery, but we're also using some of those sensors that are currently in orbit. This is Hayden Bassett again, director of the Cultural Heritage Monitoring Lab, a partnership between the Smithsonian and the Virginia Museum of Natural History. Working with NASA and other partners, the lab uses sensors, infrared imaging, and satellites to monitor missile impacts or any other changes to the Earth's surface. If these changes happen close to cultural heritage sites, they can zoom in and assess the damage. But Hayden says almost as important as the sites themselves is the surrounding area. Remember the Ivankiv Museum? The one Hayden showed me at the very beginning of the episode with no roof? Well, look at the houses. Look at the trees. Look at the grass. Look at the paths. Everything seems to be intact, except for the museum. Yeah. Everything else looks untouched. Right, and there's only so much that we can say from a satellite image, but that at least provides us with some level of information to suggest that, you know, this might not have been just collateral damage. But Ihor Poshavalo, director of the Maidan Museum in Kyiv, is a little more direct with his assessment. It was deliberately targeted object, this museum. Ihor says this museum was deliberately targeted. And he wonders not just if, but when his museum might become the next target. He's been preparing for this kind of attack since Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. After the war started in 2014, I, the first person from Ukraine, I participated in the training course on first aid to cultural heritage. Ihor was in a first cohort of people as we were starting training programs in cultural uh, rescue and recovery, disaster planning and preparation. And then he became a trainer himself as we were working with colleagues internationally. And of course, in the current crisis in Ukraine, pivotal. And so I participated in that four-week training course. And um, after this, I prepared with my colleagues uh, a kind of um, guidance and a toolkit. What should be done? By the time Russian forces invaded Ukraine in February of 2022, Ihor and his colleagues had already packed up their most important collections, secured hiding places for them, and arranged all the transportation logistics. And so we were ready and, uh, and we encouraged a lot of other museums, and some of them really uh, listened to our advices. Ihor took the training and built on it. He helped found a Ukrainian emergency response initiative, working alongside the Ukrainian government on damage and risk assessment to cultural collections and preparations for recovery. 
He and his colleagues have organized field trips to damaged museums and other sites to document the destruction and treat stored collections to ensure their preservation. He says the training was a great starting point, but he continues to learn from his own experiences. And some things worked, some did not. And in this situation, if we have a possibility to analyze, to adopt, adjust, so that we can help to respond as much effectively in possible other uh, crisis situations. Because there will be others. And that's exactly the importance of this network. The network that Scry has built uh, is important for a few reasons, but it's particularly important in 2022. One thing that we can expect now, moving forward, is more hurricane events, more wildfires. We can expect natural disaster to occur on a scale each year greater than the previous. Scry's network is going to allow cultural heritage responses to be effective no matter where those natural disaster events strike. Simply because there's going to be at least one person, one group, or several groups, hopefully, that are able to effectively respond quickly. Whether it's fire, flood, bomb, or blast, there's always going to be threats to the world's cultural treasures. And it takes individual people with training and courage to save them. But there are more of those people out in the world now than ever before. And that is what keeps Corey Wagner going. Culture is, is still being lost. We're still having armed conflicts. All those things are terrible. But seeing a world that has you know, hundreds of cultural professionals who have training how to respond in wartime. In 2003, I could count them on a hand. And now we have this big network of people. And it's not just Smithsonian, it's a movement. People working against the odds to protect the objects that reflect the spirit, identity, and history of people all over the world, wherever they're endangered. A network that is growing every year. We don't have to sit around and wait for things to happen to us. We can keep our heritage safe. You've been listening to Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. To learn more about the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative and the work that they're doing in Ukraine at this very moment, we'll include a lot more information in our newsletter. You can subscribe at si.edu slash sidedoor. We'll also include photos of cultural protection work sent by colleagues in Ukraine and pictures of Richard and Corey's work at the Mosul Museum. There are other critical players in this story who we were not able to mention by name in the episode, but who played significant roles in the success of Scry. Errol Wentworth of the American Institute of Conservation, who organized the group of volunteer curators trained in conservation who helped out in Haiti. Stephanie Hornbeck, who came out of retirement from the Smithsonian's National Museum of African Art to help with conservation in Haiti. Patrick de la Tour, Patrick Villers, Jackie Lumarc, Michel Pierre Louis, and Lorraine Mangon in Haiti. And in Iraq, Zaid Ghazi Sadala, head of the Mosul Museum. Jesse Johnson, Brian Leone, and Catherine Hansen of the Smithsonian Museum Conservation Institute, Brian Daniels from the University of Pennsylvania, and Jake Archer from the FBI Art Crimes Team. 
The course, First Aid for Cultural Heritage in Times of Crisis, was developed in partnership with the International Center for the Study of the Preservation and Restoration of Cultural Property, or ECROM, and the Prince Klaus Fund for Cultural Emergency Response. As you now know, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative does not work alone. Their work wouldn't be possible without the collaboration of countless organizations, which you can find in the episode description. Special thanks this episode to Richard Curran, Corey Wagner, Hayden Bassett, Olson Jean-Julien, and Ihor Pochevalo. Our podcast team is James Morrison, Natalie Boyd, Ann Kananen, Caitlin Schaefer, Tammy O'Neill, Jess Sadek, Lara Koch, and Sharon Bryant. Episode artwork is by Dave Leonard. Extra support comes from Jason and Genevieve at PRX. Our show is mixed by Tarek Fuda. Our theme song and episode music are by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to sponsor our show, please email sponsorship at prx.org. I'm your host, Lizzie Peabody. Thanks for listening. Yes, I remember being covered in uh, artificial blood, you know, because they, they, they try to make these things as realistic as, as they can to give you a sense of uh, what a situation may be. And my uh, mother was in a nursing home uh, up nearby, oh, no. and I went to visit her. Oh, no, no, Richard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I walk into the place, and these are, these are all, you know, aged people in their, oh, you know, God. like 80s and 90s, and my mom, and You're here I realize, I look down, and I say, my God, I'm covered in those. She's got my mother, who's the biggest warrior. <laughs>